TalkLine Network Radio, America's longest-running Jewish broadcast network, the voice of the Jewish community. Welcome to the podcast. And now... You're listening to TalkLine with Zev Brenner, America's premier Jewish broadcast on the air since 1981. And now, here's your host... Welcome back to the program. Um, Zev Brenner, very pleased that joining us right now is Ambassador Ujo Lorenz. Uh, he's a retired American diplomat. He's a former United States ambassador to Honduras. He has a 36-year career. He was posted in various countries, and he's vice presidents and national security advisors relating to Colombia, Venezuela, Bolivia, Peru, and Ecuador. But he's here now because from 2016 to 2017, he served as a special charge of the affairs and chief of the mission in Kabul, Afghanistan. And in Kabul, he led the largest U.S. embassy in the world with a staff of 8,500 U.S., Afghan, and third-country national employees representing 22 U.S. government agencies. And during his tenure in Afghanistan, he spearheaded the U.S. diplomatic effort in a priority conflict-ridden nation in both the Obama and Trump administrations. He worked closely with the incoming Trump national security team in developing a new strategic approach towards Afghanistan that encompassed government's military security, development, trade, and investment components. And he was also there in Kabul as assistant chief of mission at the U.S. Embassy in Kabul from May 2012 to June 2013. And he played a prominent role in negotiating the bilateral security agreement, which defines the long-term U.S.-Afghan relationship following the end of the large U.S. combat presence. So thank you for joining us, and thank you for your service to our country. Thanks, Zev. Good to be with you. Thank you. I might add that you're writing a book, so that should be coming soon, (laughs) right? (laughs) So tell us, you were in Afghanistan, you know the people, you know the terrain. Where did we go so wrong? Did we underestimate the Taliban? We figured they're worthwhile people we can trust and trust with getting the United States out of the country. What's going on? Look, I I think that, um, first of all, you know, no doubt, we all know Afghanistan is an incredibly um, complicated place. It's difficult to work there. Um, it's a, a very undeveloped uh, place, economy. Uh, it's conflict-ridden. It's composed of, uh, it's a very heterogeneous place, lots of ethnic groups, tribal interests. So it's not easy to operate. Um, obviously, um, you know, we came in there after September 11, arrived at the end of 2001. Um, and, you know, no doubt a lot of mistakes were made. Um, I'd be the first one to say so. Um, you know, you could criticize Former President Bush, who I have a lot of respect for. I worked for him when I was on the National Security Council staff. Uh, but, you know, a lot of people said he took his eye off the Afghan ball, focused on Iraq. And then maybe we, we in losing that focus, um, that may have proven to be a strategic mistake. He also had the President Obama, who kind of ramped up to a surge, dramatically expanded a U.S. Uh, uh, military presence and then wound it down very quickly. So it was up, down. So it was kind of erratic approach. Some people could criticize President Obama for that. Uh, then you had uh, President Trump come in. President Trump was very much an opponent. He wanted out of Afghanistan in the, in the worst sort of way. But one thing I would say is that with all these mistakes that we made, and we could talk about this for 10 hours, we, we did learn some lessons. And when I came in, 
at the very end of the Obama administration. And I started at the beginning of 2017 with President Trump working with his national security team. We really, I thought, developed kind of the sweet spot. We were looking. What were we looking for? We were looking to continue to achieve our objective dating back to September 11, which was to ensure that Afghanistan is never again a platform for terrorists to attack the United States and its allies, number one. But number two is to create a, a an effort that was sustainable from a blood and treasure perspective. We'd spent a lot of money. We lost a lot of people. I mean, a lot of people were fed up with the forever war. And what I did with General Nicholson and working with Secretary Mattis, National Security Advisor McMaster, Secretary of State Tillerson, is helping the president fashion this new South Asia strategy. And I'm going to cut to the chase very quickly. What we did is we created a very small uh, U.S. military presence. We had 8,500 U.S. forces, uh, U.S. troops, military ground forces. They were special for special operations forces and advisors. And we kept a small air contingent, about 100 aircraft that were scattered around a series of NATO bases. There were also 8,500 NATO uh, troops from all our allies, the British, the Germans, the Italians, the French, the Australians. Everybody was in with us. And we created this sustainable package that really um, had the Afghans in the lead. They were doing 95 percent of the fighting. 99% of the dying, and we were a small residual enabling force. But that force was had strategic effect, and we essentially had a stalemate on the battlefield. The Taliban could never win a strategic military victory. With our little presence there, they could never plant that Taliban flag. Uh, we had an allied government in Kabul, um, and um, we couldn't beat them, by the way. There was no victory to be had, but we could maintain stability and a stalemate. Eventually, that was the strategy that I worked with in that year that I served under President Trump. Lamentably, the president got away from that. He wanted he and, and eventually Afghanistan likely caused the jobs of Mattis, McMaster, and Tillerson. There was an element of Afghanistan in their in 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 their departure, and eventually the president kind of politicized Afghanistan. He wanted. He wanted to go for the exits. He believed that politically it was good for him. But why would he want to go for the exit? Because things were stable, no, no American casualties. The Taliban wasn't moving. There was no terrorism directed against the West. They weren't taking control. So why do we want to change the status quo? We have, we have troops all over the world in various countries. That's a great question, Zev. I think the president ultimately didn't believe. He just felt that the almost as a businessman that the Afghanistan investment was just not worth it. Uh, from a blood and treasure. We'd, we'd spent too much money, um, lost too many people, and he just not, was not willing to spend any more dollars and shed any more blood. And he has the right to do that. That's what the commander in chief uh, gets paid to do. But when, after I left in 2018, I, I think, um, you know, he appointed, uh, Ambassador Khalilzad to be the negotiator. And then this is where I think things started to go wrong. We, uh, Ambassador Khalilzad, began to negotiate directly with the Taliban. We excluded our allies, our allied government in Kabul, and eventually it led to an agreement uh, on February 29, 2020, uh, signed between the United States, the Trump administration, and the Taliban, which really I considered kind of a capitulation on the part of the United States. Um, it really called for the withdrawal, unilateral withdrawal of all U.S. forces by May 1, 2021. Uh, there were some obligations on the part of the Taliban. If you read the agreement, it's pretty short. 
uh, but they're very nebulous. It talks about uh, Taliban um, not ensuring that al-Qaeda wouldn't attack the U.S. It talked about a mitigation of violence uh, ending in a ceasefire. And it talked about the start of political of negotiations between the Taliban and the Afghan government. The reality, though, um, so that that agreement was the beginning of the end. The signing of that agreement, the cutting out of our allies in Kabul, was had a huge demoralizing effect on the government in Afghanistan and, and a huge demoralizing effect on the Afghan security forces. So that takes us to the Biden administration. President Biden came in. He inherited the Trump agreement. But he could have pulled it back. Exactly, because he pulled back everything else that Trump did. Whatever Trump did, he did just the opposite. So why in Afghanistan was the exception? I can't understand why. That's another great question, Zev. In the end of the day, if you looked at that agreement, the intelligence that 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 we had suggested that uh, Taliban had not broken relations with al-Qaeda. Rather than reducing violence, the commitment the Taliban had made in the agreement, they were actively ramping up um, uh, military operations and going on the offensive. And the Taliban never engaged the Afghan government in good faith negotiations. So President Biden could have looked at that as he conducted a policy review and said, hey, wait a minute, I'm going to pause. I'm not withdrawing my forces by May 1. I'm going to slow it down. I'm going to engage everybody, the Afghan government, the Taliban, our allies, whoever. Uh, the United Nations, but I'm going to pause. But he didn't do that. So in the end of the day, while the original sin might have been Donald Trump's, um, it it was in the president's hands to get it right, and he didn't. He made a a, a decision that was a strategic blunder of the highest order uh, and that has had catastrophic effects on the ground in Afghanistan from the beginning. He made that decision April 14, and it was downhill um, ever since. Uh, created a dramatic humanitarian crisis in Afghanistan. Um, it, um, you know, resulted in the crisis that we have seen, everything that we have seen, the collapse of an allied government, a democratically elected government with many flaws, but they were fighting with us against the terrorists um, and the Taliban seizing power. Um, and so this is what you have. I mean, I kind of call it a one-two punch. I am not a political guy, Zev. I have loyally served all my, you know, presidents from Ronald Reagan in 1981, his first year, to Donald Trump. I know uh, President Biden. I knew him when he was a senator back in the 1980s. When he was vice president, I worked with him. He's a good man. I am not criticizing anyone, but on this, you know, but on this issue of Afghanistan, an issue that I know something about, I think that he made a, a catastrophic mistake. Well, it's certainly the case because you know, and having served in Afghanistan, that listen, there are a lot of intrigues. It's complicated. Then one day they could be on your side, and the bribery plays a very important role. Of people switching sides, and if they feel there's a winner, they're going to switch tomorrow. There's no loyal, long-term loyalty, from what I've been reading. You know better than I do about it. So, if and why would the president ignore intelligence reports on the ground that's saying that there's something wrong here? The Taliban has taken over parts of the country. Why just give them the whole country? Because if you know you're leaving and they're taking over parts of the country, so the question is, did Kabul fall earlier than we anticipated? So that's just going to fall in two months and still be a Taliban country. We're back to square one where we have a more sophisticated terrorist group that's better positioned than they were 20 years ago. 
I think you uh, you're absolutely right. Look, we were not um, in an unsustainable situation. The cost of this very small ground and air force that we had with our allies was costing us about Zev about two and a half percent of total U.S. defense spending. If you and I'm talking about the military, the diplomatic, the economic development, and the intelligence piece, that whole matrix package was costing us two and a half percent. So during the height of the Obama surge in 2010, we were spending 130 billion on the war. So as a taxpayer, I have a problem with that. We were not in, any longer in that situation. And from a blood perspective, Zev, uh, beginning in 2015, when the Afghans began to go in the lead, uh, in, in any one year, 15 to the president, the most uh, soldiers we lost was 22. The year that I was ambassador, 26-2017, that whole year in 2017, we lost 17 killed in action. That's one too many. But it's still a fraction of training accidents in the U.S. Army every year, number one. And number two, we probably killed about or killed, wounded, put out of commission, probably around 17,000 Taliban uh, in 2017. Again, with the Afghans in the lead, I think we had, you know, we had hit the sweet spot. There was no need to pull the plug. Um, we could have had the patience at that stage. Um, to have waited. The president should have paused. He didn't do it. And here we are. Here we are. We're speaking with a former ambassador to Afghanistan, Hugo Lorenz, who 36 years in public service to our country. We're looking at the situation now that the United States has left. We're pretty much left Afghanistan. We're going to be right back. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Talk Line Radio and TV with Zeb Brenner is just phenomenal. Everybody concerned about the Jewish community should listen and watch. He has the best guests. He asks the most interesting questions. He's always so well prepared. It's talk radio and television from a Jewish point of view at its very best. To advertise on the Talk Line network and Talk Line's email and social media blasts reaching over 70,000 people, please call 212-769-1925, extension 100. That's 212-769-1925, extension 100. Or email info at talklinenetwork.com. You're listening to Talk Line with Zev Brenner, America's premier Jewish broadcast on the air since 1981. And now, here's your host. Welcome back to the program, Mom. Zev Brenner, our guest is a retired American diplomat, 36 years. He was posted to various countries, including six continents, and he was there in Afghanistan as the United States ambassador from 2016 to 2017. It was the largest embassy in the world, 8,500 U.S., Afghan, and third country national employees representing 22 U.S. government agencies. Mr. Ambassador, you were in the country. You were there. You know, I, even I don't understand President Trump as well, is how could you negotiate with terrorists with people have such a terrible track record? I just don't get it. How can you ensure the country that you're trying to build and you spend billions of dollars into it? How could you trust Taliban, which has a, such a terrible track record? Forget only human rights, but also going back on their word. Yeah, look, I don't want to get into uh, President Trump's head. I mean, um, like I said, from the very beginning uh, when he came on board, 
um, he sort of let, let the team and that Secretary Mattis, Secretary Tillerson, a national security advisor working with the field team, myself and General Nicholson kind of come up with this South Asia strategy. So he gave us the opportunity. But in his heart of hearts, as I said, I always felt he didn't believe um, in the enterprise. Maybe as a, I, I don't want to speculate, but who knows? Maybe as a deal maker, he thought he could, uh, you know, he could cut the, a good deal with the Taliban. He didn't. He got a very bad one, probably the worst, you know, agreement that I have seen in my nearly 40 years of uh, being involved in diplomacy. Like I said, in my mind, sir, it was a capitulation agreement. Now, you know, I wanted to mention that exactly the gains. You know, Afghanistan is a very difficult place. Things blow up every day. Bad things happen. But a lot of good happened in the last 20 years. Let me give you some very quick data points. Number one, in, in 2001, under the Taliban, there were about 650,000 kids in school, kindergarten through university. Women were not allowed to go to school. They had no rights. They were going to be at home. Um, today, there are eight and a half million kids in school in Afghanistan, kindergarten through university, 40% are women. So when I was ambassador, the two times I served there, I would go to a university and have a round table with women who were studying at law school. They were going to be lawyers, women who were getting MBAs. So a revolution in education, number one. Number two, health. There was no health system under the Taliban. Today, probably 60% of Afghans are 45-minute walking distance from a health clinic. And that you see it with a dramatic decline in infant and, and maternal mortality rates. Communications would be a, a final data point. Under the Taliban, uh, Afghanistan was like North Korea. It was a very autarkic country, completely shut off from the world. Today in Afghanistan, a country of 32 million people, there are 22 million cell phones. So you could see a woman in rural Afghanistan walking with her burqa, and she's got a cell phone on. She's connected. Again, the economy grew dramatically. Roads were built, bridges, agricultural production, you know, irrigation, everything. So right now, the situation we have is a lot of all the all of these gains, particularly the issue of, of the rights of women are up in the air. You know, what happens now? I don't know. Yeah, I was going to ask you, it's things that are going to go, listen, they have this woman have to be covered now. They're killing people. From what I've read, they're making people marry at the age of 15 to Taliban soldiers. So things are already starting to go backwards. So the question I have for you, there is there a resistance to the Taliban in other parts of the country? Because prior to 2011, before we got into the country, there were groups that fought the Taliban. Is there a network of people there that will be a counterforce to them, as far as you know? Again, another very, very good question, Zev. Look, uh, what you again, what we saw was this rapid collapse of um, of the uh, Afghan uh, military much faster than we would have expected. I mean, I predicted bad things, and I predicted, as you said, that eventually it would collapse. I wasn't going to say it publicly because I didn't want to demoralize our Afghan friends. But once we were going to get zeroed out, without the air support, which was critical, air as ground support, air for intelligence, air for logistics to supply the force, which is that component we provided. Uh, I knew the Afghans were going to be in deep trouble. I just thought it was going to take longer. might have taken another three, four, five, six more months. But the end, as you said, is going to be, uh, you know, the same. Um, but when, when the Afghans realized that we were zeroing out, they started cutting deals, as you said. They knew that they weren't going to be able to win 
and their only game was to survive. So if you're a soldier or an officer, you took the money the Taliban gave you and you went away. I mean, some some units fought very bravely and there was some intense fighting, but a large part of the army collapsed once we stabbed them in the back. You know? um, right now, though, many soldiers, when the Taliban took over, put civilian clothes and went to their villages, but they kept their guns. So there are a lot of people. There are tens of thousands of Afghans that are armed to the teeth and they're sort of disappeared. And there's some pockets of resistance. Think up in the north, about 90 miles north of Kabul. They're the Panjiris, the Panjir province. It's a very inaccessible area. It was an area that the Taliban was never able to control the last time. The Soviet Union, in their invasion, they were never able to dominate the Panjiris. So the Panjiris are in their valley, armed to the teeth. So that is a, a locus of, of potential opposition. But right now, the Taliban has, you know, 90%, you know, of effective control of the country. They're not organized yet, but there's very little opposition right now. They're also in a different position than they were 20 years ago in that Russia and China seem willing to recognize them, work with them, and also they have a better, they have $82, million, $82 billion of American armaments, the top most sophisticated weaponry, which not only will change the dynamics on the ground, but also puts them in the arms sales business where they're going to be selling it to other terrorists around the world. That's what concerns me. Again, another great point. You would have thought that our senior leadership would have done the intellectual acrobatics and connect the dots that when you talk about, well, we knew chaos would ensue. Part of that chaos was the Taliban having the largest cache of U.S. weapons in all of Central, Central South Asia. Dramatic. I mean, so here is this group whose main, uh, you know, calling in life has been conducting terrorist acts, sitting on U.S. aircraft, uh, fixed-wing helicopters, uh, weaponry, heavy artillery, light artillery weapons, night vision goggles, you name it, they have it. The other thing is that the Taliban has opened all the prisons. And for example, there was a prison that we used to supervise when I was ambassador called Policharki Prison right outside Kabul. They had about 5,000 uh, hardcore uh, uh, prisoners there. I mean, that pr prison doors went open. I mean, that's Al Qaeda. ISIS-K, Haqqani Network Central. So where are these people? The ecosystem right now is is very complicated. You think the Taliban is going to put these people back in jail? I don't think so. Probably not. They'll probably join the group. And we also supplied some of the leadership. We freed some of them from where we had them in the United States. Recently, in the last number of years, we wanted to close the last prison where we had those Taliban prisoners, and some of them are back in leadership roles. So we sent them and trained them, in a sense, to be now the next generation of Taliban leadership. Correct. Absolutely correct. And another thing we did, and this one was in, during the Trump administration, was that part of the agreement, this capitulation agreement, was that, was that the, the government of Afghanistan, who didn't even sign this agreement, would have to release 5,000 uh, hardcore Taliban fighters. And we've pressured them back in 2020 to release them. And when they did, uh, from uh, all of the information I have heard, 90% of these people went back into the fight. So the Afghans had to fight them again. 
Which is just terrible. Now, tell me, because you deal with, when you were ambassador, you deal with intelligence, you deal with people on the ground. We had a network of people that were helping. And look at, and I feel bad for those Afghan nationals who served the United States, who as translators or gave information or did other duties that have been abandoned. But it means that our intelligence capacity has pretty much not there and now become non-existent in this country. Who's going to want to work with the United States now, knowing that we've abandoned them? So I, th- I would gather to say our intelligence is probably as worst shape in Afghanistan in 20 years. Zev, that's a great insight. That is a great insight. The way I would describe it is we're back in a pre-September 11 situation. You know, when the administration talks about over the horizon, um, that unfortunately does not work. When we were in Afghanistan, for example, the NDS, uh, the National Directorate of Security, was their uh, CIA, their Mossad equivalent, had about twenty to 30,000 people trained by, trained by our intelligence community. These people were in every nook and cranny of the government. So if an al-Qaeda was planning an attack, if ISIS-K, anything, they were with us. Um, that is all gone. NDA, all these NDS guys have, have gone. If they've not been, they've gone under. There is no NDS. Um, and, of course, we had all of the Afghans, tens of thousands who work with our military, work with my embassy. I've spent the last couple of weeks, and I won't go into detail, but since the collapse, trying to get some of my people who work directly for me. I mean, having worked for the U.S. ambassador, I mean, potentially could be a death sentence, you know? So I've worked on getting these people now hey to everybody's credit and that includes the president and the administration the people who got there on the ground at kabul airport they did a great job i mean they've been able to get out in a very short period of time a hundred thousand uh, people and so those are all here a hundred thousand people have been flown out they've been flown out uh they are american citizens and afghans who worked for us so they now but we've left many there are many who are not are not going to be able to get out by August 31, which is the deadline. But I do give the administration credit and our allies. I mean, the British, the French, the Germans, we all came in, got our citizens out, have been getting out our Afghan uh, employees. But again, I think the president made a mistake by arbitrarily putting a deadline, saying we're leaving on August 31. He should have kept it a little bit more conditions-based and said, you know, we'll get out. That was his decision, but we'll get out once we get all our people out, U.S. and Afghans. But he didn't do that, and uh, here we are. But I think it's worse than that because, first of all, how do you pull out the military first and not have the civilians go? And from what I read, and correct me if I'm wrong, didn't a lot of the intelligence leave weeks ago uh, from the country? So how could you do a evacuation where you have the military leave before the civilians? Shouldn't the civilians go out? And what about the weaponry? What about all those $82 billion? Why were they left there? Why was they either not destroyed or during the course of time, if you know you're leaving, why weren't they shipped back to the United States or some other right. part of the world? I, I just don't understand that. Again, uh, that's, what, that's a question that a lot of Americans are asking because you can be someone like myself, probably in, an, in a minority opinion, that believes that the decision to withdraw the U.S. forces was a, a, a strategic blunder of the highest order. But still, most Americans, even if they wanted the withdrawal of American forces, they wanted it done right. And clearly its implementation was uh, disastrous. 
I agree. How do you have you leave your citizens behind? You didn't synchronize, and you have to bring the military back in. The fact that we had to bring in our military back in again is just proof of just how how flawed the whole withdrawal was carried out. But shouldn't we take punitive measures now to clear more space so we can get people out, including whether it's bombing Taliban positions or using the military that's already there to make a safe passage for those that want to get through and want to leave? Shouldn't we be doing a lot more on the ground? Don't we have that capacity? You know, Zev, I am going to be on that one. I'm going to pull back a little <laughs> bit. I, I think that we have put ourselves into such a deep hole that an effort to do that puts many, many uh, Americans at risk. The Taliban, they, they're in control now. We allowed them to take control of the country. We gave up all our bases. Um, they, we're in this one spot um, in, the, in the airport. The Taliban control, the Haqqani network control, all of security in, in Kabul. And so if we try to do that, you're really jeopardizing, you're putting our people in a very unfavorable uh, position. Now, what we should have done, which is, again, what you're talking, if before we should have kept Bagram open, our biggest air base, which is right outside of Kabul. And we could have kept, that is the hardest target in Afghanistan. No one was going to get in there. And that's where we should have conducted the evacuation. We have the capability of flying people outside of Kabul. It's a 15-minute, 10-minute helicopter ride. Um, it's a 45-minute car ride. We could have secured the corridor and gotten people out in Bagram. Why we prematurely gave up Bagram, the biggest air base in all of Central Asia, is just, it just behooves me. I can't figure it out. It's beyond my pay grade. Mike, you mentioned the Mossad before. I know in Iran, the American capabilities for intelligence has been greatly diminished after relying on Israel. I was just curious if you had worked with the Mossad in Afghanistan, if there's any Israeli presence whatsoever, as far as you know. First of all, if there was, I wouldn't comment on it. Um, but no. I think there's only one lone Jew in the country, if I remember reading. It was. It was. And there used to be a, a small but very vibrant Jewish community in Afghanistan. It's a shame the country's losing uh, the diversity, the Sikh community, the Jewish community, small Christian community. Things will go from bad to worse now with the Taliban, no doubt. Now, the media is portraying that the Taliban, as bad as they are, you have more extremists. Al-Qaeda X is even worse. Is they're, they're, they're really at odds with the Taliban. Maybe there are, but they're operating there under the authority of the Taliban. Isn't the media trying to make a division between these two groups when really Al-Qaeda and Taliban have a much better relationship than what the media is portraying now? Yeah, there are various groups. Uh, you know, Afghanistan's a little bit of a, of a terrorism uh, central there's so many um, insurgent and terrorist groups operating in some of the ungoverned spaces uh, in Afghanistan. But with regards to your question on al-Qaeda, look, Osama bin Laden was a very smart guy. When he arrived um, in Afghanistan in the late 90s and cut his deal with the Taliban leader, Mullah Omar, he gave Omar a lot of money. But he also made sure that a lot of the al-Qaeda commanders married senior Taliban commanders. So they're intermarried, their family. I find it very difficult. As you know, in that part of the way of the world, uh, family is even more sacred than in our Judeo-Christian 
society. So I, I, um, I don't see a break. I mean, I'm not saying that the Taliban is going to encourage Al Qaeda to attack us because it, it's not convenient for them. But I don't, they're not going to be able, it's going to be difficult for them to shut them down, their family. Then there's the other question of ISIS-K, which is the, the uh, Afghan chapter of, of ISIS. Um, and they uh, established a chapter back in uh, 2014. They're alive and well. They're the people who took credit for the attack um, at the uh, airport yesterday. Um, but again, it's all in Afghanistan that's so complicated that when you see that ISIS-K, the people who control uh, uh, security in Kabul is the Haqqani network. They are the ones in control. Haqqani network is one of the worst nastiest, most brutal terrorist groups in the world. They're a, they're a faction of the Taliban, a very a particularly brutal uh, part of the Taliban. Uh, you know, you always think, you know, the uh, Haqqani network specialty is the ability to do major terrorist strikes in urban areas. Requires tremendous logistics. Getting, having the pool of suicide bombers, the financing piece, the safe houses in the city, putting able to move large explosives through security checkpoints. ISIS-K is not normally, you know, you know, the, the Haqqani network are the masters. So when I see that the Haqqani network is right ringed right around the airport, you, we really ultimately don't know what really happened. I would put uh, a question mark on the bombing. ISIS-K took credit. Did ISIS-K subcontract some Haqqani people? Did they do it themselves? I mean, I don't think we know, but I just think it's a very, uh, there are a lot of question marks out there. Are we more at risk now for a terrorist attack in the United States? Oh, I think we're far less safe than we were, uh, you know, before the collapse of, our, of, of a friendly pro-Western government um, in Kabul. Um, no doubt about it. I, I may take time. It may take time for the, some of these groups to reconstitute. Al-Qaeda was there, but they've been badly hurt. But now if they have the opportunity, they will reconstitute. And I, my great worry in all of this is that someday they're going to be knocking on our door once again. Unfortunately, final question, Pakistan has enabled the Taliban we don't talk much about it, and they have a relationship with the United States and get aid from us. But could we have done more with Pakistan to rein in the Taliban? Absolutely. You know, the uh, the, the uh, Pakistanis played a double game. They were uh, they had the uh, the status of major non-NATO ally. The United States was providing a lot of uh, military assistance to the Pakistani military. But meanwhile, they were providing they they were the big patron of the Taliban. The sanctuary for the Taliban leaders, they're all in, in, uh, in Pakistan. The Taliban principal leadership shura is called the Quetta Shura. Quetta is a city in Pakistan. They're in Quetta. They're protected by the Pakistani military, by the ISI, the Pakistani military intelligence. If you're a wounded Taliban fighter, where do you go? You go across the border of Pakistan and get medical treatment there. Where do you train? You train in Pakistan. Where do you get your arms, your weapons, your bullets in Pakistan? When you need R&R, &R, rest and recreation, where do you go? Pakistan. Um, so, you know, um, 
when I, the biggest tool uh, of, in this fight for the Pakistanis, for ISI, the Pakistani Military Intelligence Services, were the Haqqani Network. So when I see that the Haqqani Network took control of Kabul, um, in a sense, it's a victory for, uh, for Pakistan. But the reality is that this is a victory. Pakistan, it's a victory for the Taliban. It's a t victory for the terrorists. And it's a tremendous defeat for the United States and its allies. And it's also a boost for Russia and China because they're going to get their feet in there too. Yes. Again, again, I look at it as a trifecta. There's the whole humanitarian tragedy of everything that's going going on in Afghanistan right now, the suffering of the people, the tragedy of having fallen to these, the, the Taliban, this sort of kind of medieval cult that have the most extremist views of Sharia law, um, number one. Number two, it's the fact that the security threat, the ability of these terrorist groups to reconstitute and potentially threaten us in the future. And then finally, the message it sends to our to our potential enemies that the pledge of the U.S., the pledge of the Western allies is uh, is not credible. So if you're a Taiwan, if you're in Australia, if you're the Baltic republics, if you're Israel, if you are the Ukraine, there are question marks. And the, our enemies will take advantage of this. Again, we've come out uh, far, far worse. I can't imagine um, if the Biden people really did a policy review and they could walk back April 14, they would walk it back. I have no doubt of that. I don't know. I would certainly hope so, but it's too late now. Um, too late. When you dealt with, did you personally meet with some of the Taliban leadership during your tenure in Afghanistan? Um, I, will, I will prefer not to comment on that. Okay, no problem. That'll be for your book. We didn't negotiate with them, but we did speak to them at that time. But we did not hold uh, negotiations with them like uh, the Trump administration did. Unfortunately. I want to thank you, Ambassador Hugo Lorenz, a retired American diplomat. Uh, he served 36 years serving our country, but he was there in Afghanistan as the United States ambassador from 2016-2017, as I mentioned in the book. When's the book going to be coming out? Well, my book is kind of a memoirs, and it's uh, sort of a third finished, okay? Uh, but I will, when, I, when I finish it, I will send you a copy. And it Love will it. have a, a chapter about uh, Afghanistan. And I'd love to have you on again, too, because you certainly know what's going on there. And thank you for sharing some of your insight to the unfortunate situation that now exists in Afghanistan. And thank you again for your service. Thank you, Zev. Good to be with you. And we're going to be right back. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks for listening. For continuous Jewish programs, hawklinenetwork.com or our 24-hour-a-day listen line at 641-741-0389. For past shows, you can find us on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon, YouTube, Instagram, and all major podcast platforms, or jewishpodcast.org. Thanks for listening to the TalkLineNetwork.com. TalkLine Network Radio, America's longest-running Jewish broadcast network, the voice of the Jewish community.